Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. We thank you for the, the faculty of speech with which we can sing your praises and for the, the privilege of gathering together this morning to do so corporately. It's been such a blessing to hear your word read and to pray together this morning, to sing, lift our voices to you. All of these things together are our corporate worship, and we, we thank you, Lord, for the, the privilege of considering this morning as we open your word how our worship should extend to every corner of our lives. We pray that you would help us to think deeply about these things, and how worship takes place not just here corporately in this place, it should extend to a life of devotion in every aspect of our lives. We pray that your word would have its way in us this morning. And we would leave this place eager to reach out in all of our affections and actions and thoughts in worship to you. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus 17. As you're finding your place there, please stand with me. We'll begin this morning by reading this entire chapter, verses 1 through 16. Leviticus 17, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord." So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them 
who takes in hunting any beast or bird that, that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. You may be seated. In our opening psalm this morning, Pastor John read these words, Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Implying that it's possible for the heart to be fractured in its worship. To be fractured in its devotion, and in its affections. So the psalmist prays, Unite my heart to fear your name. Similarly, in the New Testament, twice the Apostle James warns against double-mindedness, having a mind that wants to go two different ways, both trusting God and not trusting God. We find in, in both Testaments of the Bible that, that we have this tendency as, as fallen humans toward living a religious double life, giving God our service over here but being given in our affections to other gods over there. Contending for truth over here, but living in ways that deny that truth over there. And the passage that we've just read would begin to show us that living for the Lord is an all-or-nothing proposition. It is intended to be a life of complete devotion. And we'll see by the end of our time together, this morning, that in Christ, the life of worship to the Lord is, is a life that can be realized, a life of, of complete devotion to Him, a life, a life where one's heart is united in fear of Him. That is a life that can be realized in Christ. Now, on, on its surface, the passage that we've just re read, it, it appears to simply give instruction regarding where to slaughter animals, and it appears to simply forbid the eating of blood, and certainly it does do that. But sometimes the most crucial factor in interpreting a passage is considering where that passage is found in a book. And if the passage that we just read was found in the first half of Leviticus, then we might take it to be just that. It might just be instructions on where to slaughter animals and what to do with the blood. Because very broadly speaking, the first half of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 16, are about how to formally worship. They're about how to carry out the ritual aspects of religious life in Israel. But this passage, chapter 17, is found at the beginning of the second half of Leviticus. And the second half of Leviticus is broadly about how to live life with God. Chapter 17 is, is something like a hinge in the book of Leviticus. The first part of the book has focused on ritual purity outward expressions of contrition, outward rituals of atonement, outward offerings of consecration to God, formal ceremonial actions, 
expressing the state of Israel's relationship to God. And the emphasis now in the second half of the book is that life with God is not merely all of that. It's not merely external ritual, but it is internal devotion that should be reflected in a lifestyle. That is, worship of Yahweh entails living a life that is wholly devoted to Him. Worship cannot be compartmentalized. We can't, we can't break it up into pieces. There is a lifestyle that is befitting worship of God, and that lifestyle could be, could be described at, with one word, and that word is holiness. Holiness. In the second half of the book, we're going to see God giving commands to be a certain kind of people. And God will repeatedly ground those commands with statements like, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And when we hear those refrains, our minds should turn back to Eden. Should turn back to the very first chapters of the Bible where God designed everything to work exactly that way. God created mankind in the beginning to serve as His image bearers. Man was created to live in fellowship with God, ruling over the creation of God, bearing the image of God. Man can't flourish functioning in any other way. And so Leviticus is seeking to point us back toward that ideal and to move the Israelites to live in that ideal. And so the second half of Leviticus essentially says, let not this relationship with God merely be external, ritual, formal, but let it be all-encompassing. Let this people be holy as God is holy. And chapter 17 shows a connection then between the ritual and the everyday life. And it communicates that worship should lead to changes that cannot be compartmentalized, cannot be compartmentalized to a part of life and cannot be compartmentalized to a part of the calendar. But worship of God is all-encompassing. Now, the passage breaks naturally into two sections, and so we're going to find ourselves looking at the the passage in, in two chunks here, communicating two distinct truths. And the first is that true worship requires the eradication of false worship. True worship requires the eradication of false worship. So look with me again at verse 3. Verse 3. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp. Now there's something that, that should interest us about those three animals. The ox, the lamb, the goat, those are all three the animals that were, that were sanctioned as offerings in the first part of the book. So these are all animals that can be offered as sacrifices. And there are different ways of understanding what's written here in the first part of, of this chapter, given what the law says elsewhere. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but, but I'll just give you a couple of the options. These are what the commentators say about how we could understand these things, okay? Some say that, that what, what the Lord is telling Moses here is that no animal of these three classes, ox, goat, and, and sheep, or, or lamb, no, no animal of these classes could be slaughtered unless they were being offered 
to Yahweh as sacrifices. That's one option. Others would say they could be slaughtered privately to be eaten by the people, but the blood and the fat always had to be brought to the tent of meeting as an offering to God. Okay? Now, I could spend time going into all of the reasons why we might go one way or the other, but I am confident that three-fourths of you would go into hibernation. And it isn't actually crucial to, to where we're going this morning, figuring out which it is. The what isn't crucial, the why is crucial. Why he's telling them this is actually very important. This command is given so that the people offering worship will offer worship exclusively to Yahweh. Look at verse 7. He says, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. So, consider what he's saying here. Yahweh is not the kind of God who says, look, as long as you bring the required offerings to the tabernacle at the required times, I don't care what you do with the other animals on your own time. Live your double life. That is not the kind of God that Yahweh is. Okay? And this shouldn't be news to anybody who has been reading the Bible from Genesis 1 on. Certainly shouldn't be news to anybody in Israel at this point. If you worship Yahweh, you only worship Him. Tabernacle worship of Yahweh is assumed to be exclusive. And so what he's communicating in this chapter is that all the blood, all the blood belongs to Him. But isn't it intriguing how the Lord describes this non-exclusive worship of false worship? He uses two terms that, that stand out to me. Two, two terms that stand out to me. First of all, he talks about goat demons. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. There were demons associated with these false gods that the people were accustomed to worshiping in their former life. And, and unfortunately, at times, in the, even in the midst of their covenant with, with, with the Lord. Is that surprising? Is it surprising that there were demons behind these idols? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be if we remember back to the very beginning of, of Genesis, the serpent's first order of business was to move the woman to question God, to, to move her to lower her opinion of Him and to, to raise her opinion of herself. We shouldn't be surprised at all to find that the enemy is behind any attempt to rob God of worship owed to Him alone. The second term that I find intriguing is, is the word whore. That is not the most polite word, is it? It's an, it's an ugly word for an ugly act. After whom they whore. As we continue in, in, the, in the Pentateuch here, we, we come to Numbers 25 and we read of the people whoring after the daughters of Moab and whoring after their gods. They, they join themselves to Baal of Peor. Moses, in his writing of those, those, those stories, he uses language of marital consummation to depict their idolatry. Deuteronomy 32.7 reads, They sacrificed to demons 
that were no gods. So the people are in covenant with Yahweh, which, which He likens to a marriage. And so to, to worship someone or something other than God is, in God's mind, and what he, he wants it to be the case in the mind of the people, it is an act of marital infidelity. That's why he uses this, this, this word whore, so that they will no longer whore after these goat demons. To be in a covenant relationship with God is to be completely devoted to Him as in a marriage. Not only ritually, but, but everywhere. Not just in the tabernacle, not only in the camp, but everywhere. All the implements of worship are His. All the things with which people might honor God are brought to Him in order to prevent any lapses into false worship. To give worship to another is to commit an act of whoredom with the demonic. It is, in a metaphorical sense, to sleep with the enemy. The New Testament also teaches the truth that to worship God is to worship Him alone. Jesus taught in Matthew 6.24, He taught these words, No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, so Jesus here presents money as, as an idol. Now, now we might think, goodness, I have to have money. So what do I do? Well, the key word there that Jesus uses is, is the word master. And in, in, in the context of Matthew of Matthew chapter, chapter 6, Jesus juxtaposes two things that could be primary in one's life. Now, the Bible actually has, has quite a bit to say about financial planning. If we read Proverbs, we, we find that the Bible champions financial planning. Jesus would have to contradict His own Holy Spirit in order to, to say, look, don't think a thing about money. That's not what Jesus is saying. But rather, Jesus is saying, only one thing can be primary to us. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says, Seek first, seek primarily the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. You can't seek two primary things. And so we need to think about that. We need to think what is primary in a world of of secondary things. Stuart Scott, I've shared this with you many times in the past, Stuart Scott has offered a very helpful definition of an idol. And it's, it's worth repeating because we struggle with these things frequently in our life. An idol is anything that is equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. An idol is anything that is equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. Now, how many of us try to live a double life by worshiping the Lord in particular areas of life or on particular days of the calendar while in other areas or on other days we have these things that are more significant than Him in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. And when we really think about that definition of an idol, it's quite easy to recognize 
that even inherently good things can be idols in our lives. Even good gifts from God can be idols to us. Gifts can become bigger to us than the giver. Now, how might we be able to tell if that's the case? I would share with you, I would share with you one telltale sign this morning that, that a gift has become more important to us than the giver. When, when my God-focused gratitude for the gift shifts into a gift-focused fear of losing the gift, that is an indication that I have begun worshiping the gift rather than the giver. I, I, I begin to act less like a steward of the gift and more like a hoarder or a miser of that gift. Thankfulness toward God for a gift will begin to, to lead me to, to consider myself a steward of that thing. If, if, if I'm thinking of that gift truly as a gift and I'm thankful for it, my thoughts will be, will be, will be drawn to Him. And I will think of, of my relationship to that gift as, as one of stewardship. And I want to honor Him with the gift and I'll do what's best for the gift. On the other hand, if, if my thoughts toward that gift are thoughts of worship, I'm going, to, I'm going to have thoughts of fear. I'm going to fear losing that thing. My thoughts are going to inevitably turn away from God, and I'll frequently do things that, that make me a bad steward of that gift. For, for, for example, if, if that gift is a, is a relationship, out of fear of losing that relationship, ironically, I may, may do what is not good for that person. I definitely won't do what is, what is honoring to God. We, 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 could, we, could all, we could be here all day listing things that, that we, we may have as, as good gifts of God that we could elevate to the position of worship above God. It could, it could be a parent-child relationship. It could be a dating relationship. It could be a marriage. It could be a ministry position. Could be good health. Could be financial prosperity with which the Lord has blessed us. Could be a spiritual gift. Could be time. Something good that God has given to me, but it has become more to me than He is, and so I have become a hoarder of it, and therefore a poor steward of it. When God focused gratitude for a gift morphs into gift-focused fear of losing the gift, that's a danger sign. And, and obviously, obviously, any inherently sinful thing can, can be an idol as well. But consider this. If we shift our attention over to the New Testament, we find Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, James in his third chapter, and John in Revelation 9, all indicating that just as in the Old Testament, idolatry is demonic in nature. That is, it is a tactic of the enemy to lure us into it. And James chapter 1 teaches that our hearts have all the requisite desires to make that false worship attractive. And so we need to recognize what is going on and repent of it. Very similar to what God has, has required of these animals in Leviticus chapter 17. We need to bring that gift to God and say, Lord, I confess my false worship. 
The, the enemy wants me to worship the gift above the giver, wants me to worship anything above you, and my heart is fertile ground for this temptation. Please save me from this. Lord, I do not want to live a double life, worshiping you with my ritual, but worshiping your gifts with my life. Please help me. I want to worship you alone. There may be many of us in the room this morning that need to pray that kind of a prayer this morning, recognizing that we have elevated something above God. True worship requires eradication of all false worship. As we move into the second half of Leviticus 17, we find that true worship is reflected in daily life. True worship is reflected in daily life. The second half of of the instruction in chapter 8 is introduced in verse 8. It's introduced in verse 8. Look look at verse 8 again. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Now here... The focus is on the ascension offering, and you may or may not remember that the ascension offering is the one offering of all the offerings that we studied at the beginning of Leviticus. It's the one offering that is completely consumed on the altar. Everything but the skin is offered up in smoke on the altar. It's the offering that says, I belong to you and with you. There's no reason ever, according to these verses, no reason ever for an ascension offering to be offered anywhere but at the tabernacle. There is no other authorized place of worship. And the person who violates this command will be cut off from the people. Now, we may be inclined, as were the editors of the ESV, if you have the ESV in front of you, we may be inclined to put these two verses with the first section of of the chapter. But the literary structure indicates otherwise by the introduction of the speech at at the beginning of verse 8. If you look at the beginning of verse 8 again, it says... And you shall say to them. So he he begins a second part of of the speech. There's a reintroduction of of the instruction. That's that's just a natural break in the teaching. And then the teaching just continues uninterrupted for the rest of the passage. That is one among several indications in the chapter that that from verse 8 on is one chunk. Okay? So... Verses 8 and 9 are about bringing formal offerings exclusively to the tabernacle. The verses that follow are all about laws against eating blood. And so it seems that worship has implications not only for formal ritual, but also for the daily life. In other words, the laws about about how to worship Yahweh, they don't just require that, that they formally offer these these offerings in a particular place, but they also require that the people live in a particular way when they are not engaged in formal worship. In this case, they require certain ways of eating. Worshiping Yahweh is going to affect the way that you live. Some some of us are very particular about the way that we eat, right? So if if you have a law that connects to, to worship how you're going to eat. Some of us would find that quite intrusive. But that's what's happening here in Leviticus 17. You are going to eat a particular way for the rest of your life because of this law 
of formal worship. And so what the Lord is saying is that formal worship has implications for your everyday life. As we continue in the following chapters, 18 and following, we're, we're going to find that worshiping Yahweh in, in, entails a host of other ways that, that worship touches all the areas of the lifestyle of a worshiper. There cannot be a double life. You cannot have your, your, your formal worship of God compartmentalized over here and then we just live however we want. No, our worship, our formal worship is representative of this life of holiness. Leviticus 17, 10 through 12 are crucial verses showing how the theology of the tabernacle of worship is to be reflected in daily life. So look, look with me again at verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Now I know you guys are crazy about chiasms, so here's another one. Here's a chiasm. Verse, if you look, look at verse 10 and 12, they mirror each other. They're both about the prohibition against eating blood. Verse 11, right in the middle, is the why. Verse 11 is in the middle, so it's key. Why shouldn't they eat blood? And why, if they do, are they cut off from the people? Look at verse 11 again. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. A few things to note here. First, what is significant about the blood is that the life is, is in it. It, it. it isn't the blood per se, but, that, but, but the, the life that's significant. Now, if you, if you look at the middle of verse 11, you see that word soul, or your souls. Souls is the exact same Hebrew word as the word life at the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse. So, the life of the animal is being given to atone for the life of the people. What we have here is life for life, substitution. And that's important. A second, God emphatically says here, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement. And, and what that indicates is that there's nothing mystical or special about this animal blood. If it accomplishes anything, it is because, because God has caused it to do something. God has used it as his instrument. God is the one who is accomplishing atonement. All right. Third, there is something spiritually taboo about ingesting blood because you're essentially ingesting the animal's life. Why that's a bad thing, why he doesn't want them to ingest an animal's life may not be clear right here in Leviticus. I'm going to suggest a reason to you later. But, but you should not take in the life of an animal. And not just these sacrificial animals, because also in verse 13 he says, don't, don't even take in the life of, of a hunted animal. You, when, you, when you hunt an animal and you kill it, you need to pour its blood out, cover it up with dust. And the final couple of verses indicate that it was, 
it was forbidden to eat animals that had died naturally or that had been torn by another animal, likely because there's no way to know if their, if their blood has been disposed of properly. And it all goes back to this idea, you can't eat the blood because the life is in the blood. And this reinforces to the people, look, what, what goes on in the tabernacle is uncompartmentalizable. I just coined a word. You can write that down. Feel free to use it rent-free. Or I don't think you, you, you pay rent for, for things like that, but use it for free. Uncompartmentalizable. The mechanism of atonement becomes something that the people are to think about all the time. It informs their daily life. It dictates what and how they eat. There is no double life. I worship Yahweh ritually, and so I live a particular way. There's no compartmentalization of worship of Yahweh. There's, there's to be no one in Israel saying, I worship Yahweh ritually, but I live however I want. And I suggest again that this passage is intended to be a hinge into the following chapters. It's, it's not just that the people, that the, the people, how they eat is affected by their relationship with God, but every aspect of their life is affected. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, turn with me over to John chapter 6, please. John chapter 6. Some of you will remember that John 6 relates the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the next day, after Jesus fed the 5,000, many of those same people wanted seconds. And Jesus begins to preach to them about the true bread of heaven. And He contrasts the manna that their fathers ate in the wilderness with the true bread from heaven. So look with me at John 6, 32. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is going to go on to, to teach them that His own flesh is that bread. Now this metaphor, Jesus' flesh as the bread of heaven, is emphasized in John 6. But later in the chapter, Jesus also talks about blood. Okay, And as we read more of John 6, I want you to try to listen to this with first century Israelite ears. Try, try to hear this with ears well familiar with Leviticus 17. Ears that have heard for a lifetime, don't eat blood. Do not eat blood because life is in the blood. Life is in the blood, so don't eat it. All right? Now look with me at John 6, 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as He taught at Capernaum. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, when you hear that, with Leviticus 17 in mind, you can understand why they would have found this to be absolutely scandalous. They have heard all of their lives, we don't, we don't eat blood because the life is in the blood. And Jesus has essentially said here, yeah, you eat my flesh and you drink my blood precisely because the life is in the blood. And if you do that, you will live forever. Now let's back up a chapter in John and see what Jesus might mean by all of this because the, the, the people are right to be a little troubled. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? We don't actually eat the muscle of Jesus and we don't actually drink his blood contrary to what some people in the world would say. We don't actually do that. So what, what does Jesus mean? Look at John 5, 24. John 5, 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Now remember, the life is in the blood. And we continue in, 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 in John, we find Jesus being crucified on the cross. Christ's blood shed for the sinner on the cross. And Jesus raised from the dead on the third day. Then, according to, to John 5 that we've just read, the sinner hearing the gospel... And trusting in Christ is joined to Christ so that the life of Christ becomes the life of the believer. And this is why Jesus prays in John 17, the night before going to the cross. John 17, 20 and following. Jesus prays to the Father. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about the eleven. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Union with Christ by faith effects that transfer of life, which is pictured by the metaphor of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And I suspect that the reason that the people were told for centuries not to drink the blood of animals was because of all of this. Everything is pointing to the gospel. 
We, we don't trust in animal sacrifices. We don't want to be joined to animals. The life of an animal can't save us. There is one sacrifice that saves. There is one to whom we want to be joined in order to have life. It's not a dead animal, but it's the crucified and risen Christ. And so when the people finally hear this flesh, this blood, ingest this, they are intended to understand this saves you. Not all those animal sacrifices. This. Jesus finally says, now it's time to eat flesh. Now it's time to drink blood. And if you do, that is, if you hear this gospel, and if you believe in this Savior, you will have life, my life, living in you. Life from the dead. Now, Having understood that, we should also understand this, that Jesus too refuses to allow for any kind of double life among those who would be joined to Him. And right here in the Gospel of John, Jesus offers another crucial metaphor as it pertains to this idea of true worship being reflected in daily life. If you're writing notes or taking notes, you might write down John 15. John 15, verses 1 through 5. Atonement touches every aspect of our lives. And in John 15, 1 through 5, Jesus explains that our union with Him is not only the mechanism of our life from the spiritual dead, but it's also our power to live as He does. It's our power to, to, to worship in, in every realm of our being. Listen to John 4, uh, 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus, too, believes that those who abide in Him, that is, who have trusted in Him, followed Him, their lives also are going to reflect worship in all of life. And listen, the New Testament as a whole preaches to us, there can be no double life for those who follow Christ. If you're familiar with the New Testament epistles, you you may already recognize this. The structure of the New Testament epistles and certainly the content themselves testify to this reality. Is it not remarkable that all of the New Testament epistles wed gospel instruction with instruction for daily living? Put the two things together. When the New Testament authors were inspired to write, they were never inspired to write moral instruction divorced from Truths of the gospel of grace. We find no epistles that are, that, are, that are strictly how to live a godly life. Neither do we ever find any New Testament authors inspired to write strictly gospels of grace. Divorced from some instruction about how that truth should be reflected in life. Now, Some, some among, among us hearing these things this morning may, may, may think... I I don't want to be guilty of a double life. But as I look at this mirror, 
I can't help but find that my own record is that very thing. I can't help but see that my formal worship isn't consistently reflected in my daily life. And I don't want it to be that way. And so what do I do? Well, some who find themselves frustrated by that inconsistency, an inconsistency of their formal worship with their their daily lives, their daily worship, we might say, may find the structure of the New Testament epistles to be instructive. In other words, if if you are in that place, I would I would consider you I would, I would encourage you to to ask the question: Is there in my life an overemphasis on one part of of the material of the New Testament epistles or the other? What I mean by that is: Is there sufficient gospel meditation in your daily life? Perhaps as you are approaching daily living. Perhaps you're you're striving for holiness. Perhaps that is the case. But maybe you are not grounding that holiness on gospel foundations. In other words, if if we're using the the Pauline epistles as as an example, perhaps you're going straight to the second half. You're neglecting the first half. You're thinking all about what you need to do for Christ, and you're not thinking at all about who you are in Christ. Is that possible? Perhaps some of us would find ourselves in that category this this morning. Now, now, listen to this. It is also the case that some of us may find ourselves living inconsistently, living a double life, as it were, because we're on the other end of that spectrum. We are all gospel meditation, and we never then ask the question after this gospel meditation, okay, if this is true, then how would the Lord have me to live? We might say we spend all of our time mentally in the first half of one of Paul's epistles and we never give ourselves to meditation and obedience to the second half of a Pauline epistle. So there's a reason that the Lord has structured things the way that He has. And there's a reason that the Lord has structured Leviticus the way that He has. With this hinge in the middle showing us. Look, these things go together. We cannot live a double life. Worship cannot be compartmentalized, but it must, it, must be, it must be pervasive in my life. True union-afforded, life-in-Christ-fueled worship cannot be compartmentalized to ritual on Sunday or ritual on Wednesday or whenever, but it flows into our actions. Now, as is our custom, I'm going to pray in just a moment to, to close this sermon, but we are going to observe a few minutes of, of silent reflection. And during that time, I encourage you to consider, are there areas of false worship in your life? In particular, areas where you have elevated a good gift of God to a position of worship above the giver something of that nature of which you, you need to repent so that you are not living a double life? Is there, are there other ways in which your worship of God is just not reflected in your daily life? Let's consider these things as we, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the consistency of your word. We thank you for the repetitive nature of your word. We thank you that you have known us so well and have loved us so well that you bring the same messages to us over and over. And we take that, Lord, as as a measure of your kindness to us because we need to hear these things. And we pray that as we... As we consider these things in the next few minutes and the next few days and months and for the rest of our lives, that we would be dedicated, Lord, dedicated to you, that we would recognize that you have purchased us, all of us, that we would see your worthiness, the worthiness of Christ, the blood that he shed to purchase us, and that we would, we would see, Lord, that worship of you is, is not compartmentalizable, but that we would, we would follow you with every part of us. Of course, Lord, we, we confess to you our, our desperate need for the power of the Holy Spirit and so we ask that he would be active, active in our minds in these coming minutes to, to bring appropriate conviction upon us and to, to empower us for obedience. We pray, Lord, that we would ask for help, ask our brothers and sisters for help where, where appropriate and that we would, we would sharpen one another well and that we would be a kind of people not content to live lives of ritual worship on one day a week or in one area of our lives and then to worship other gods at other times or in other ways or to have lives that reflect nothing of true worship. But Lord, let us be holy as you are holy. Let us be committed to that for your glory, for the good of your church, and for the name of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.